Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I'm Trisha Keffer, one of the hosts on the New Books Network Architecture, with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please drop me an email through my website at plantspeoplelove.com. The book today is by Sandra Albro, and it is Vacant to Vibrant, Creating Successful Green Infrastructure Networks, uh, published by Island Press in 2019. Hi, Sandra. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, So could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am currently Director of Community Partnerships at Holden Forests and Gardens in Cleveland, Ohio. Holden Forests and Gardens is composed of both Cleveland Botanical Garden and the Holden Arboretum. So we have an urban botanical garden campus and a more rural arboretum campus. I've been with Cleveland Botanical Garden now for 10 years. I was a research associate and I did the Vacant to Vibrant project as part of an applied research program that we were running here at the garden. Um, Can you tell us about your educational background? Yeah, I have a master's degree in plant ecology and um, I've I also was a nurse for a couple of years, and so even though I'm no longer in the medical field, I still draw upon my nursing experience quite a bit when I'm interacting with people, and I think it explains a bit about my interest in the community and health effects of urban greening projects. Well, this is a a fascinating book. I've really enjoyed reading it. Um, Can you tell us, what is your motivation for writing it? The motivation for writing it was mostly to just get the project and all of the findings and years of of learning out of my head and to share that with other people who might find it to be useful. So as a person who is a practitioner in urban greening, sometimes I've found it to be difficult to figure out exactly who to connect with to talk about the very practical problems that come up with creating an uh, urban greening project. And so the findings of this long exploration, um, this long project with an interdisciplinary team of experts. I just thought it was important to get those onto paper so that I could share them more easily. Yes, I love it. It's a a great how to do it. Um, And I've enjoyed reading through, you know, what works and what doesn't seem to work. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, at the beginning, you talk a lot about uh, the benefits of urban farming, what works, but what doesn't work, and um, how can we incorporate some of these strategies into vacant lots in our own neighborhoods? Yeah, the urban farming focus came from us from our urban farming program at Cleveland Botanical Garden. It started in 1996. Uh, It's called Green Core. It's a way to use urban farms to help, help educate youth in growing food and in building life skills. And Over the 20-year history of this program, we ended up building a lot of expertise in vacant land use more generally. And a lot of people were coming to us with questions about how they could do their own urban farm, but then also, you know, what else could we use our vacant parcels for? And what other types of plant and soil treatments would create similar 
community and environmental benefits as urban farms, but maybe would be less labor intensive. And so that led us to start looking at other types of vacant land use. And um, that was the inspiration for, for what eventually became this project. But in the early days, I also was looking a lot at soil contamination remediation using compost or um, other types of organic materials that contained phosphorus that might stabilize soil lead. We are also looking at different types of plant treatments to absorb stormwater, to beautify neighborhoods. So some of the benefits of urban farming that I still draw upon and I think are important for urban greening projects more generally are just the, the real community connections that come with urban farming. So unlike some other types of urban greening work, I think urban farming is really rooted in social justice and, um, and community conversations about improving access to food and access to other types of, of healthy things in communities that have kind of historically lacked those types of resources. And, and I still think that those are very important conversations to have within other types of urban greening. So urban farming, you know, in general, it's, it's still a very interesting topic. We have our urban farming program still here at the Botanical Garden, and we're still educating youth on a variety of farms throughout Cleveland. Um, it, so it, what works is that providing, you know, food, fresh local food to communities is still, there's still a lot of demand for that, and that um, will be needed for the foreseeable future. We are able to provide farm stands that accept WIC and EBT um, and for so that local residents can grow or sorry, can access fresh local food at, at pretty inexpensive prices for something that's essentially organic. Um, some of the things though that, that maybe don't work is I don't think urban farming as a whole is a strategy that's going to be, that's really going to put a dent in the large number of vacant parcels that we have in communities like Cleveland. So in Cleveland right now, we have about 30,000 vacant parcels and not all of those can become an urban farm. Just we, we need something else to do with them. So there's, there's so much land that, um, would there be enough people to farm all of it? Right. I mean, yes, that's one concern. You know, what, what would we do with the food? It would be possible, you know, to, the, the bottom would drop out of the market for, for food that's grown at that kind of scale. Or, you know, maybe it would be possible to just do large farming operations in urban areas. But I think there are a lot of, you know, community considerations also. You know, not, not everyone is going to want to live by a farm or there are so many other types of environmental and community needs that we have in cities like Gary, Cleveland, and Buffalo that, you know, call for a variety of strategies, not just urban farming. Um, well, you talked about a little bit about uh, the social fabric. Um, what do you find that um, urban farming, how does it bring people together and what do they do when they're together? Urban farming, we have seen that it brings um, people together that normally wouldn't socialize together. So we've seen inter intergenerational knowledge transfer, you know, older folks who may maybe grew up on a farm, uh, transferring their love for gardening and farming, um, their love for growing plants and food 
to younger people. Um, we also see, you know, just different types of social and um, racial boundaries being crossed with urban farming. And um, so what are the benefits of um, repurposing all these vacant lots? I'll just play a little devil's advocate. Why not just leave them vacant? (laughs) So we know that that vacant parcels, um, you know, they depress property values. Um, They are difficult for cities to maintain. They don't inspire redevelopment a lot of times. You know, people don't look at vacant parcels or, you know, communities with just a ton of vacancy and be like, oh, that looks like a great place to build a business or a house um, or a school. So we need to repurpose vacant parcels because there's there are real human health and community effects of vacancy, um, negative effects. And then we also have, you know, demands that climate change is going to put on our urban communities for absorbing stormwater and alleviating um, sequestering carbon, alleviating heating and cooling costs that are going to change with climate change. So there are a lot of different demands for vacant lots um, being repurposed in some way that can count toward equity that can um, help stabilize communities and build more resilient communities for the future. Um, so what are some other uses for vacant lots that you found? Well, gosh, I, I think there, you know, we're at a point, I have a, an illustration that I show during presentations recently that shows a particular neighborhood on the east side of Cleveland in 1910 and in 2018. And the landscape looks very similar. There are a couple of houses and then a lot of undeveloped land in between these houses. It almost looks like a semi-rural landscape. And it, it just kind of illustrates that we are at a similar point in some ways in our redevelopment as we were when we were first developing the city of Cleveland. And there, there's just a lot of possibility within the vacant land that exists to become, you know, the schools and the houses, businesses, industry that were developed in the early 20th century. And so what are, what, what are the benefits to having a green lot? Cause you talked a little bit about uh, the psychological benefits and the health benefits. What exactly are those benefits? So, <clears throat> The, well, again, I, I guess the, we know that neg- that vacant lots, uh, as they currently exist, um, you know, pose a variety of risks to human health and communities. So we know that the soils on vacant lot parcels are contaminated often with lead and other types of pollutants that you know, result from industrial use and the the former lives of these vacant parcels. Um, And then we also know that if we were to remediate the soils and add different types of, you know, um, plants or stormwater management or trees, that, that we could turn some of those negative effects of vacant land into positive health benefits. Um, so we could absorb stormwater, we could um, 
improve property values that would help build wealth in communities. Um, or vacant parcels could be redeveloped the way that the land was originally developed, like I mentioned, into, into buildings, businesses, houses. Um, so can you uh, tell us a little bit of background about your vacant to vibrant projects? Yes. So we ended up working in three post-industrial cities. We were in Gary, Indiana, Cleveland, Ohio, and Buffalo, New York. And we chose those cities because they're fairly similar in their industrial histories and some of the problems that they currently face around vacant land. All three of the cities were staring down potential lawsuits from US EPA to enforce the Clean Water Act. Um, and those were centered around the combined sewer systems that exist in each of these cities. So the cities were primed to discuss stormwater management and specifically green infrastructure. Um, in a way that some other cities weren't, you know, feeling compelled to really look at green infrastructure. So on one hand, we were interested in um, environmental benefit that vacant parcels in urban areas could provide. And the environmental benefit we focused on was stormwater management. And then we were also interested in the community benefits that we saw through urban farming. So um, how could vacant parcels be developed as green space in a way that contributed to human health improvements and um, neighborhood stabilization. And then on top of that, we were just interested in whether small, whether you could layer these different types of land uses into a small residential parcel. And the idea behind that was that maybe, you know, increasing the number of benefits that a small residential parcel provides to communities would increase the, the chances that these parcels would remain as green space in the long term in the face of pressure from redevelopment and other types of, of land use. And so, and, and so we went through this lengthy process to, you know, choose parcels that were appropriate for both stormwater management and community benefit, and then um, to, to work with communities to figure out a plan for what to put on them, um, you know, to address needs that they had for recreation. Um, all three of these neighborhoods didn't have a lot of park space existing. Um, in, in Cleveland and Gary in particular, they didn't have parks within walking distance. Um, and so we went through this lengthy community engagement process to identify recreational uses that we could put on each parcel. And then underneath the, the park um, land use, we layered stormwater management and um, redevelop these as stormwater parks. Um, can you talk a little bit more about um, your, you, you have a, a lot of great research in here about your community engagement process um, and your, your site analysis and how it was really interesting how you chose um, and your criteria for, for picking lots. Yeah, that was in response to the way that we tend to see a lot of urban greening projects happening, including urban farming, is that, you know, most typically it starts with people have a vacant lot that's an eyesore in their neighborhood, and they come up with a use for it that they want, and then they may get halfway into this process before they start really looking at whether the soils and the, the position of the parcel and the landscape are appropriate for the land use that they've chosen. Um, and that can be really expensive and discouraging. So for example, if you get into a vacant parcel 
and you discover that it's been previously used as a, a gas station or as a um, dry cleaner, it may not be appropriate to grow food on that or to build closed structures that might trap some of the gases that are still coming out of the soil. Um, and so we wanted to get around that by by thinking more methodically in advance, you know, working from the top down. If you have an entire city with thousands of vacant parcels to choose from, how do you go about developing criteria so that you end up at locations that are perfectly suited to the project that you want to do? And we think it's that's an important way to approach projects like this because um, it helps build cost efficiency into the process so that you aren't you know, having expensive mistakes or surprises like finding underground storage tanks or having to really uh, remediate the soils to fit the land use that, that was chosen. Um, and then on the community engagement side too, once we had narrowed it down to neighborhoods, we started talking with residents about, you know, you don't have any parks in your neighborhood. What type of, if you, if you only had one park, what would you want it to do? Who would it be for? And, and um, what would be on it. And so we went through this lengthy process to kind of work with residents to identify their fears, um, usually around safety, um, usually around youth, and the, and the, the real and perceived risks that, that youth bring. Um, and um, went through this process to work through the different fears that they had around safety, but then also these needs that they identified for like some sort of recreational space for families to come up with land uses that um, were maybe novel. So for in one example in Buffalo, we built a handball court on a vacant parcel um, to help address some needs that they had for um, you know, handball, a, a recreational sport. Um, and then in other areas, residents didn't want any sort of reason for people to loiter on parcels. And so in some places, we didn't even add a park bench because they said no park benches, um, no reason for people to stay. We just want a, a passive recreational space that will beautify the neighborhood and maybe add some bird or bat habitat. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Um, how, how, you're talking about in a book, um, how do you address, you know, the increased uh, connectivity between neighborhoods and, and you know, uh, alleviate people's fears of, of crime. Yeah, connectivity came up a lot because it's, um, it's something that planners are often trying to promote um, in our experience, at least in the, in the neighborhoods that we were working in. Um, there was kind of this idea that if uh, the way that streets were built originally it was it, particularly in Cleveland, we have these very long parallel streets with um, very few connections between them. So even if you are neighbors, you know, and live fairly close uh, to each other, but on different streets, it would be, um, I think these streets are about a quarter of a mile to a half mile long. So it may be an entire mile of walking or, or driving to get from one house to another if um you know if they share a backyard and so we were looking at ways you know with vacant parcels there's already kind of connectivity built in there just because you have this open green space uh, or open you know vacant lot um, so we were looking at indicators that people were looking for connectivity like um, the existence of cut throughs and other types of informal trails that had been uh, worn down just from people walking 
um, on a daily basis across parcels. And so in the early part of the project, we were looking for opportunities to, to kind of formalize those paths and create real connections between blocks. But then once we got into that process, we found that people were very afraid of that type of connectivity in lower income communities with the high rates of vacancy and housing abandonment that we have because there tends to be a lot of crime that goes along with those types of, of um, you know, abandoned houses and vacant parcels. And so for the most part, people were afraid that providing easy walking paths would, provi would provide um, just convenience for people who are using abandoned houses for drugs or for other types of, of unwanted activity. And so although we went into the project thinking we would build connectivity by adding paths, in the end, we ended, we ended up evaluating whether to add fences or even gates or some sort of way that people could walk through from one parcel to another between blocks, but um, not in a, in a fast way that would facilitate some sort of unwanted activity. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yes, because we all talk about we need to, you know, increase connectivity, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, then, um, but then maybe there was a reason why there wasn't connectivity to begin with. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right. Or, or there is, and, well, and this is kind of, we ended up coming full circle because, you know, we looked at connectivity in the beginning. We ended up trying to shy away from that. But then we ran into real practical constraints that cities have and that they don't have the resources to build fences on the back of every vacant parcel when they demolish a house. Um, so just by through, you know, through demolishing houses at the rate that is happening in some of these post-industrial neighborhoods um, you know this connectivity was being added and it wasn't something that the cities could prevent so we talked with neighborhoods who were very upset you know they wanted us to spend part of our project money on houses or on, on fences and gates to prevent people from walking through and um, in one parcel in gary we were looking at adding a, a gate to a parcel where just next door on either side there were the vacant lots were just open in the back to the next block beyond them so we could have added a gate there but then with the number of houses that were coming down on that block there was no way to really prevent those types of cut throughs in the future and um and over time the city shied away from discouraging walking through those parcels at all just because they, there was no way they would be able to prevent that at the scale of demolition that was about to take place. Ooh. Um, well, can we talk a little bit about, um, can you tell me more about the stormwater vacant lots? Um, what is that? How do you use it? Yeah, so stormwater was a foundation for all nine of the projects that we ended up doing. So we ended up doing three projects in each of three cities, and the projects were clustered into one neighborhood. Um, 
and um, and underlying all of the different, we had nine different recreational overlays, I guess. Um, but underneath all of that was the same type of stormwater management. And we were, our goal for stormwater management was to capture all of the runoff that would have been generated on the parcel um, from either snow, snow melt or rainwater to prevent that from going into the combined sewer systems and contributing to combined sewer overflows, which is where most of the water pollution was coming from in the cities. Um, or it's where most of the non-point source pollution was coming from. And so, and then in parcels where we could add additional stormwater capacity, we were also interested in routing additional stormwater runoff from adjacent houses or impervious surfaces into the stormwater retention that we'd built into each parcel. So most of the stormwater retention that we ended up building were just, um, you know, rain gardens on top of bioretention cells um, that allowed stormwater to collect and be stored underground and then gradually infiltrate into the water table over time. And in a couple of, in Buffalo in particular, at the start of the project, they wanted us to add sewer overflows to the rain gardens that we were building um, because they had this idea that the rain gardens would flood because they were concentrating stormwater runoff and that eventually they would flood and there would be standing pools of water that would pose a risk to people. So early on, they wanted us to add overflow drains that would allow, you know, that would prevent that type of flooding by directing excess flow back into the sewer. And then um, thankfully, they, there was enough green infrastructure being built in Buffalo at the time that the, the engineers were starting to see that this type of overflow just doesn't really happen um, very often at all. So we ended up not even attaching the stormwater retention cells to the sewer. Um, and so that was the, that was the stormwater layer that we added. Um, in a couple of places, we were able to add curb cuts that would divert street flow or um, just kind of passive systems to divert flow from um, from adjacent sidewalks and um, driveways into our rain gardens. And then in Buffalo too, we also did a couple of downspout disconnections from adjacent houses into the gardens that we had built that would capture all of the roof runoff. Um, well, how do you uh, build support and financing to to do these projects? We were fortunate to have a grant um, from the Great Lakes Protection Fund to do the project. And that grant allowed us to do more than just build the projects. Um, it allowed us to do a lot of this methodical thinking about how you choose sites and how you design them to fit a variety of community needs. Um, and then it allowed us to construct the stormwater parks and then over time to modify them as needed and disseminate the results. Normally, um, communities are working from grant funds or from small pots of money, um, which is one of the motivations for keeping our projects very simple and low cost. So the average cost of each of our projects was about $18,000. And that's, you know, I've seen stormwater retention areas of a similar size range up to $80,000, depending on the location and the design. Um, and, but I've also seen, you know, vacant lot projects operate on, on a much smaller budget. So that was probably middle of the road. And then, um, you know, although we had grant funds to do something like this, I think there are a variety of ways that 
other communities could pay for it, um, particularly if there are stormwater fees built in that would allow, um, and, and stormwater credits that allow you to avoid fees like that. Um, that can, the stormwater credits can generate some money or stormwater fees can generate money too for different types of grant programs to build green infrastructure. Um, we also see, you know, because of the recreational use of parcels, maybe maybe people have access to funds for community development, recreation, economic development that would help support some of the the projects that we did. Um, we also see people crowdfunding for projects like this, you know, just kind of collecting money and doing something very simple, just to add recreational space in the on the vacant lot next to their house. That's true. There's a lot of ways to to build community support into that. Um, do you have a, a favorite project and why? <laughs> or a couple favorite um, projects. That's okay. Yeah, each of the projects was, was so different. I would say that in Gary, the project that gets talked about a lot is the the project that's on the cover of the book. Um, so there, we discussed a variety of recreational needs that the community has. Um, in Gary, they're very challenged, you know, with maintaining the, the parks that they already had. So there was kind of this fear that if they added just another park with swing sets, that eventually it would it would turn into the other abandoned parks that they had. Um, in the city of Gary, we were fortunate to work with the city in advance um, and throughout the, the length of the project. And they had hardest hit funding from the federal government to demolish houses. Um, in this particular neighborhood, there were a number of houses that had stood vacant for a number of years. Um, so one of these houses sat on a, a prominent corner as you entered the neighborhood and had been vacant for 15 to 20 years. Um, most of the residents in the neighborhood didn't even remember who, who had used to live in the house. And so we had the opportunity not just to you know, work with the city to have the house removed, but then also to roll that directly into a community improvement project. And the residents just, they had a lot of pride in this particular neighborhood, which is named Etna. Um, and Etna neighborhood predates the city of Gary. Um, it was developed as, as a factory, a small factory town about 20 to 30 years before the city of Gary was built. So there was a lot of pride around the name and they chose to use this parcel to just have a, a small sign that announced the name of the community that you're driving into. Um, and so each of the letters of the name, A-E-T-N-A, are divided up into um, five rain gardens with one letter per per rain garden and kind of a, a Burma shave type sign as you enter the neighborhood. And that project turned out really well and, and um, was a bit unusual. In Buffalo, the handball court seems to get a lot of use. Um, so in the rear of this really kind of large residential parcel, there's um, the back of the parcel connected to a basketball hoop on an adjacent parcel that was already being used. And so there was an ability to kind of build up this little um, park and add another sport. Um, and in Buffalo, you know, there's a large immigrant population where handball was a, was a fairly popular sport in the neighborhood. And so in the back of that parcel, we constructed a handball court. Um, and then in the front of the parcel, we added picnic area seating and a rain garden to capture stormwater runoff. 
Um, so what are some important lessons learned from doing all this that you could share uh, with our audience? And how has that changed your process uh, to do uh, this in other urban cities? So lessons learned from this experience, um, there were just so many of them, which is why I wrote a book about it. Um, I, I guess I would say um, specifically around community engagement, um, this project shifted my approach to urban greening projects um, pretty dramatically. So in the beginning, when we approached the project, we were pretty invested in establishing direct connections with the community that we were working on or working in. So, um, you know, we, we went to the neighborhood, we hosted our own meetings, we did a lot of door knocking and, um, you know, showed up to their community meetings and just over time invested in building those that trust with residents so that we had very clear lines of communication directly between the, the project team and, and the residents of the neighborhood. And some of the complications of that kind of approach are just that, you know, it can be very hard to maintain those trust relationships. They're very fragile and can be broken very easily. Um, there has to be real institutional investment and buy-in um, to maintain the resources for the, that support that trust over many years. Um, because if you lose one or two key people um, that had that trust built with the neighborhood and there's no backup plan for how to address that, then you know, it can, trust can be broken very easily. Um, it, it was also hard as um, we didn't live in the communities. Most of the communities that we were working in, our project team members lived in adjacent communities, but not those particular ones. And so um, it was just hard to really know like who in the community, um, when you have all of these voices coming at you, how to prioritize conflicting opinions about the projects that we we're working on and how to balance at, you know, adequately balance different viewpoints. Um, and so in, over the project period, we became more and more reliant on community liaisons. So people who were both very familiar with the residents of the neighborhoods that we were working in, but then also um, very familiar with the type of project that we were doing and our motivations um, for the project and the real need for the project. Um, so they could speak both languages. And over time, we have found that investing in those trust relationships with the, the liaison, I think were, um, were a better use of our time and, and less damaging maybe to the residents because they didn't have, um, you know, they didn't have to go through multiple processes of building trust and then, you know, maybe losing key, key contacts that they were used to talking to. Um, also, I think just because we were some of the first investors in the neighborhood that we were working in in Gary and Cleveland, it was a lot easier for us to have that direct access to residents. But um, looking down the future and seeing more and more projects coming to those neighborhoods, we could see that it just wouldn't be possible for every project team to be able to have those direct connections with residents. Like they would just become, the residents would become overwhelmed with you know, people and projects to talk about. And so again, you know, that the building trust and working through community liaison, liaisons that know how to balance different viewpoints, that know how to translate back and forth um, between residents and project teams, and then know how to kind of like 
help buffer residents a little bit from all of the different actors who would eventually be working in their communities, that became increasingly important. Um, so uh, can you tell our audience, um, what kind of projects are you working on now? Oh, she can't hear me. On now. Currently, I am working on, um, I've, I've moved away from stormwater management and green infrastructure, which makes me a little sad. Um, and I guess I haven't moved entirely away. I have, I'm now mostly working on urban tree canopy. Um, so I am chairing the local um, coalition of businesses, branches of local government, and nonprofit agencies that are implementing um, our urban forest master plan in Cleveland. And, you know, trees can be built or can be built. They can be planted for stormwater management, but there are a variety of other reasons why people might plant trees. Um, the, and there are a lot of similarities between what I'm doing now and what I was doing. So we're still looking at plants and green space as a way to build equity in neighborhoods and also um, position neighborhoods for climate resilience in the future. Um, and there's a lot of research that supports trees being used for both of those reasons. So we know that trees improve air quality and um, add value to properties. And, and those two benefits can help address some health and wealth disparities that we see in the neighborhoods that we're working in. Um, trees also sequester carbon and they alleviate heat island effects and um, provide other benefits that will become very important to neighborhoods in the future with climate change. And so most of my work now is around growing urban tree canopy in Cleveland and um, talking about that with other cities. Oh, that's interesting. So um, tell me more about um, the tree canopy projects. So for, um, I guess, in some ways, you know, parts of the vacant to vibrant project where, you know, took this like systems level approach to green infrastructure. So we did have nine tangible projects um, that were constructed through the project, but I would say a majority of the, the project itself was, was spent on thinking through the process of constructing urban green space on vacant parcels. You know, how do you acquire land and um, how do you go through the process of making decisions about what is built on it, and um, you know how and how it could be protected from redevelopment if that's needed. Um, and so, with the Cleveland Tree Plan work, we are again kind of taking more of the systems level approach. Like when you look, when you have limited resources to plant trees, how do you make decisions about where those trees are planted to benefit human health, the environment, and um, and also economic development. So some of the, the projects that I work on do have, you know, they think about adding trees or plants for, um, for animals and as animal habitat. But I personally think that the focus in urban areas um, in, um, in struggling neighborhoods, I, I'm personally more invested in using green space to address human health needs. Um, and so most of the projects that we're working on now with regard to either tree canopy or um, even vacant land use 
have to do more with um, building, with addressing human health disparities and um, stabilizing communities that have gone through depopulation. Oh, well, that sounds interesting. Well, you know, uh, Sandra, I'd like to thank you so much for being here today. And, and I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I'd like for you to tell us um, how can uh, people connect with you uh, through your hashtag? So the, the name of the project, um, Vacant to Vibrant, was a very good lesson for me in the, the power of a name. Um, this was a grant-funded project, and like other grant-funded projects that I had, um, it didn't start out with a name, or it, it started out with a very unwieldy grant project name um, with colons and subtitles and everything. Um, but the the project started with this planning process where we convened interdisciplinary groups of people who touched either stormwater management or vacant land use or um, urban green space. In, in any way, we convene, we convene these different groups of in, uh, these different interdisciplinary groups of professionals to have conversations about like how, what the overlap is amongst the different areas that they were working in. And just as a byproduct of those meetings, we created a hashtag to kind of you know filter conversation on Twitter. And vacant to vibrant just kind of was suggested as a hashtag for. Um, to help us organize some of the tweets that were coming out of these interdisciplinary meetings. And over time, that just took on a life of its own and became the name of the project itself. Um, so for the most part, we don't still use that as a way to, um, you know, have conversation. It, it's out there and free for people to use if they would like to still use it. Um, I do notice the name Vacant to Vibrant being used for a couple of other projects that are unrelated right now. And so it's just kind of out there in the world. Um, people can still use it. It's provided a lot of value to this project and helping us distill ideas very simply into a name that is much easier for people to remember and talk about. Um, and so it's it's been an important lesson in the value of just naming something simply um, and in a way that people can talk about. Well, um, again, I want to thank you for being here today. And um, this book, I tell the audience, it's beautiful at, at the illustrations and, and the research. It's really um, very in depth. Um, and uh, it's a great uh, how to book to start thinking about um, vacant properties um, in your own neighborhood. Um, and uh, thank you for being here, and uh, I hope you have a nice evening. Thank you so much. Again, this has been a New Books in Network with a special mini-series in landscape architecture, and this is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. Uh, if you have any ideas for books, please send them. Please send me an email uh, through my website at plantspeoplelove.com. And again, this fabulous book is uh, Make It Too Vibrant, Creating Successful Green Infrastructure Networks by Sandra Albro, published by Island Press in 2019.